Please put your hands together for Jackie Kay. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. And it's a, it's a huge pleasure to be here. And thank you, Patrick, for winding me up like that. <laughs> no pressure then, eh? Uh, and he said she was good. Did you hear him say that she was actually good? She, he said she was one of the best people. I didn't think so. <laughs> Conversation afterwards. <laughs> Anyway, no, thank you, Patrick, for, um, for inviting all of us here. And doesn't he do a brilliant job? I think we should all give Patrick a huge round. It's a, it's a really a massive act of generosity to, to run a festival like this and to, 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 to really invite all of us into the hospitality of the festival itself. It's kind of, it's spirit. And I've, I've never, ever seen a more beautiful festival tent than here. I mean, it's just shockingly, shockingly, stunningly beautiful. It almost makes you want to dress up for it. <laughs> like the trousers? <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to read a, a mixture, mo mostly poetry, but some, some um, from Red Dust Road as well, because um, I'm doing a, a session uh, uh, tomorrow with Kate Norbury, and, and the, who wrote the wonderful book, at the, the Fish Ladder. So we're going to be talking about that tomorrow at uh, at four o'clock um, but before uh, I read from the memoir I'm going to read a poem in Scots there might be some words that some people here don't understand but that's life <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do about it <laughs> and uh, this is a this is a love poem for for my partner Denise who's here I'm lucky enough to have her here this is a, a lang promise and um, I really like the idea of, of loving somebody in any eventuality, whatever, whatever happens to you. That sounds a bit fateful, <laughs> like I might just fall off the stage right now and break my leg, but she's, she would still love me. <laughs> Compound fracture, tibia, fibia. <laughs> a lang promise. Whether the weather be drich or fair, my love, if good times greet us, or we hate to face the worst. A hint and a four, what will happen to us? Blind in the present, eyes open to the furore, unkempt or sharply dressed, suddenly poor or poorly, peely-wally or in fine fickle, belled or frosty, calm as a ghoul or in a fiery fari, in dark December, in springy spring weather, Doon by the barrows on the banks of the Champ de Lycée at midnight, first licht, whether the moon be round or crescent, and ye be of sound mind or absent, I'll tack your trusty hond and lead you over the haw hame, my darling. I'll carry my lantern and door defend you again, only enemy. And whilst there's breath in me, I'll blow into ye. For ye are my true love, the bonny face I see afore me. Nicks I fall into slumber, it's ye I see swimmingly. All your goodness and blitheness, your passion. You'll be mine new until the end of time, my bonny lassie. I'll tack the full good of you and gee it back. And gee it back to you. A first kiss. A lang promise, times 
golden ring. Thank you very much. That was a nice wee clap. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I think I'll stick with the this, this, this Scots poems just for, for a second longer, if I may. After all, I am the macker. I love the, I love the word macker. They asked me when they asked me to be macker if I wanted to keep the name. And I said, of course, because who else has the name macker? And, um, and it, it, whether people know what it means or not, I hope by the end of the five years people will know what it means, but it does come from the old word make. And I went into Garden Centre the other day, and this man in, in uh, Torrance near Glasgow, and this man said to me, am I right in thinking you're the macker? <laughs> I said, aye, you're right in thinking I'm the macker. <laughs> and it felt quite good, you know, felt quite good to... Quite good to say that, yeah. In fact, it was the same garden centre, weirdly enough, that I was on the way to one day when I'd been asked if I would, uh, if I'd asked if I would accept a call from the first minister, and uh, and they said she'll be calling around such and such a time. And I waited around my house for about an hour and a half, and there was no call. So I thought, right, I'm taking my mum and dad out for their tea and scone, like I promised I would. And so we're on the way to this garden centre when the phone rang, and it was the first minister. So I had to pull up the car, and she asked me if I would be the macker. And, um, and I, I said yes, but I was a bit taken aback and um, overwhelmed, but I said yes. And then I said, would you talk to my mum? <laughs> <laughs> I'd been told that when I spoke to her, I must address her properly and I must say, hello, First Minister, which I duly did. When I handed the phone to my mum, she said, hello, Nicola. <laughs> <laughs> Am I proud of you, dear? <laughs> it's a bit of a weird. And then we put the call, uh, call down. My dad, who's 91, was sitting in the back and he said, Who was that on the phone? My mum said, It was the First Minister, John. And he went, Who? <laughs> so, so it was a bit like a Bruins sketch or something. <laughs> the First Minister, who? <laughs> it went on for some time until he cottoned on. <laughs> anyway, so this is a, this is a, a poem called Fear. And uh, it's the old Scots word for friend, along with Joe, um, companion, friend. It appears in Auld Lang Syne. So here's a hon, my trusty fear, and gies a hon to thine. And we'll tack a right good willy wa for Auld Lang Syne. For Auld, <laughs> Auld Lang Syne. So, um, so I, in this poem, I pronounce it feedy because it gives me more rhymes. <laughs> and it follows... Um, the course of a friendship between two women from when they're little girls to when they're old women. And the first time I ever read this poem was at a burn supper in Sri Lanka, of all places. The haggis were flown in. <laughs> I watched them land in the runway and spontaneously address themselves. <laughs> Fair for your honest sonsy face, great chieftain of the puddinries. And these two women, um, Yes, they'd been friends their whole lives, and so it was like it was, it was for them. If you went to the topmost hill, Feary, where we used to clam as girls, you'd see the snow of the day, Feary, settling in the hills. You'd mind another day, maybe, when we ran down the hill in the snow, sliding and singing our way to the foot, lassies laughing together, how bra, the years slipping awaw, oot in the weather. And new. We're suddenly old, Feary. Our friendship's ne'er been weary. We've always seen the world differently. 
Where would have been with my Joe, my Fiery, my Fiercy, my Dirio? Your hair, it may be silver new, your walk a wee bit doddery, but we've had a whirl and a blast, girl, through the cold blast winter, through spring, summer. Over a lifetime, my Fiery, my Bonnie Lassie, I'd defend you, you, me, Blythe and Blatter. Here we gang down the hill, nay matter, past the bracken, Bonnie Brays, Barley, Oot by the roaring sea, still having a blether. We who love sincerely, we who love say fiercely. The snow near looks say barry, nor the winter trees say pretty. Come on, come on, my dearie. Tack my hand, my fairy. Thank you very much. And uh, this poem I wrote for my son, uh, Matthew, who's now 28 and uh, six foot two. Tell me I don't look old enough. <laughs> Tell me I do look tall enough. <laughs> and, um, and it's strange how some poems kind of kick around for, for ages before you, you write them or some experiences stay around for ages before they get snapped into, into something other than themselves. Um, and so, so this is from a time when he was four, when he had a, a massive febrile convulsion. This is called The Returning. And when you came back, Matthew, and your four-year-old body stopped its shaking, and your temperature fell to nearly normal, you had lost all your words your soft mouth silent as a rosebud, and your cheeks lit like the sky after a double rainbow. All your words flown like winter birds, as if the fit shook every new word just learnt off your tongue. And when you came back, Matthew, gift of God, you could have come back as a girl, your curly hair grown long, in the space you'd been gone, it seemed, and softer, Soft as the new beautific smile on your face, benevolent, free of the world's wrongs. I held your small shape reborn in my arms, each eye shed a single tear, and I waited, and I held my breath. And then I saw a silent word in your face, and you were back, and full of grace, back as if back from the long lost, the missing, and the dead. Thank you. Thank you. I forgot to ask if anybody had drunk from this glass, but it's too late now. <laughs> Whatever is coming is coming. I'm going to read you a little bit from, uh, from Red Dust Road. Uh, this is a, a book really about all four of my, my parents finding my, and it was really kind of sparked off by this initial bit that I'm going to read from you uh, now, which is the very first and only meeting that I had with my birth father in the Nikon Hilton Hotel in Abuja. And it was very funny when I was trying to trace my birth uh, 
father because I didn't think, I thought it would be very difficult to find, but in the end I found him very, very easily. I put his name into Google <laughs> and up popped Pop. <laughs> and uh, the reason that Pop popped so quickly is because he's a leading ethnobotanist. He's a world tree specialist. So that seemed really bizarre that there was I chasing my family tree. <laughs> Just testing to see how smart you are on your own. <laughs> With one or two exceptions, hopefully. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you'd, um, if you'd put it in a novel, nobody would have believed you. Um, so, so it had to be a memoir. And I hadn't thought that I'd write a memoir, really. I hadn't chosen to write one, in a way. Jonathan is suddenly there in the hotel corridor leading to the swimming pool area. He's sitting on a white plastic chair in a sad cafe. There's a small counter with a coffee machine and some depressed looking buns. He's dressed all in white, a long white African dress, very ornately embroidered like lace and white trousers. He's wearing black shoes. He's wired up. My heart is racing. Jonathan, I say. Yes, he says, turning slowly and standing to meet me. I hadn't meant to meet him here. I'd been sat at the swimming pool by the bar, looking up at every black man coming through the opening in the wall. I'd been told they met in 1961 in the dance hall in Aberdeen. Jonathan was a student there and my mother was a nurse. They kept in touch during my mother's pregnancy. Then Jonathan returned to Nigeria and my birth mother went to a mother and baby home in Edinburgh to have me. I was adopted five months later by a couple in Glasgow. The people who are to me, my real parents, they are lifelong and committed socialists. When I traced my birth mother some years ago, I discovered that after her relationship with Jonathan, she'd become a Mormon. The Latter-day Church of Jesus Christ Saints or whatever. The Mormons, she told me, believe that adopted people cry out to be adopted while still in the womb. <laughs> When I told my mum that my mother was a Mormon, she said, oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's the pits. Why not have a wee half bottle and forget all about it? <laughs> and now we're in the room. I'm about to have a conversation with my birth father for the very first time. Jonathan is moving about from foot to foot, shifting his weight from side to side like a man who is about to say something. Life-changing, he begins, before we can proceed with this meeting, I would like to pray for you and to welcome you to Nigeria. I feel alarmed. Extreme religion scares the hell out of me. It seems to me like some kind of madness, but it's obvious that Jonathan won't be able to talk at all if I try and skip the sermon. So I say, okay then, and he says, sit, please, and I sit. He plucks a Bible from the carrier, from the plastic bag. Then he immediately starts whirling and twirling around the blue hotel room, dancing and clapping his hands above his head, then below his waist, pointing his face up to the ceiling, then down to the floor, singing, Oh God Almighty, Oh God Almighty, Oh God Almighty. We welcome Jackie Kay to Nigeria. Thank you, God Almighty, for bringing her here safely. She has crossed the waters. She has landed on Nigerian soil for the very first time. Oh God Almighty. He does some very fancy footwork. He's incredibly speedy for a man of 73. He's whirling like a dervish. Suddenly, 
He takes off his shoes and kneels on the floor and reads the first of many extracts from the Bible. He seems to half read and half recite them. As he recites, he looks at me directly. An odd look, quite charming, slightly actorish. The sermon for him is a kind of performance. His whole body gets thrown into it. God has given you this talent. You're a writer. You have written books. You have been blessed. God already knows about you. Now, all you must do is receive Christ and your talent will become even bigger and you will become more focused. Amen. Don't think for a second that God has not been waiting for you. <laughs> From this moment on, you are protected. God protects the talented. Amen. You can walk through fire. You won't get burnt. You can swim in dangerous waters. You won't drown. Don't even bother with your hotel safe. God is looking out for you. I shift uneasily in my seat. Christ almighty, my father is barking mad. <laughs> he spins and dances and sings some more, singing in the most god-awful flat voice, really off-key. The singing sounds like a mixture of African chanting and hymns. It's a shock. Despite the fact that he can't sing, his performance is captivating. I watch his bare feet dance around the room and recognize my own toes. He looks over directly into my eyes again to see if I'm persuaded. I can see in your eyes that you're not yet able to put your full trust in God. And yet you know that would make me happy. At every reading you do, think of the people you could convert. <laughs> I think of the 12 people at a reading in Milton Keynes Central Library on a rainy Thursday night. <laughs> Think of the people you could bring to the Lord if you get ready to receive Christ. I try and look as non-committal as possible. <laughs> I start to think I should try and get this to stop. It feels like a kind of assault. He senses me thinking this and says, just one more extract from the Bible. I prayed to God you would be patient, and you are being patient. I prayed to God you would be docile, and you are being docile. He wants me to be cleansed, cleansed of his past sin. If animal blood can cleanse sins under the old law, how much more can the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us and prepare us for glory? I realize with a fresh horror that Jonathan is seeing me as a sin, me as impure, me the bastard, illegitimate. I'm sitting here on this hotel room chair, little better than a whore in his eyes, dirty and unsaved, the living proof of sin. Christianity has taken away his African culture and given him this. I'm thinking of colonialism and missionaries and not properly listening. God knows how long it's all been going on for now. I keep trying to rouse myself and ask him kindly to stop. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Anyway, so that went on for two and a half hours. <laughs> I've zoned out now, drugged by his voice. I go in and out of consciousness like somebody who's very ill. I can't see properly. Pages of the Bible are flying around the room like hummingbirds. I'm desperate for a drink. My glass of wine is sitting on the table in front of me, but it seems disrespectful to drink alcohol in the middle of my own personal service. <laughs> Thank you for your patience, Jonathan says again, after another half an hour facing up to eternity. The tears are pouring down my face. I can't stop. It's a flood. It's self-pity. Jonathan is delighted to see them. He thinks maybe I'm ready to receive Christ. He thinks I'm moved by his sermon. I am moved. My cheeks are soaking wet. 
I wipe them with my bare hands as Jonathan's voice goes deep and he lifts his hands in the air and he claps and he spins like a windmill. I think, maybe it's nearly over. <sighs> Dear God, I believe in you. If only this will stop. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. What a lovely bunch you are. <laughs> so I'm just going to uh, read you a tiny bit from later on in the book. Um, every family holiday that we went on as kids, um, my, my dad would sing to, to um, my brother or I and my mum, and he was really great at making up, making up songs as well. I remember one of the first holidays that we went to, we went to the, the Isle of Mull, and uh, my brother, who's actually the same color as me, although he doesn't see himself in the, in, in the way that I see myself, and said to me one time, you're making a complete ass of yourself, by the way, going around telling people you're black. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you're making an ass of yourself going around telling people you're white. <laughs> he says, I'm not telling people I'm white. And I said, well, what color are you saying you are then? And he paused for a minute and went, um, fawn? <laughs> is it because I is fun? <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have the same ring somehow. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he's an a interesting character. Anyway, so we went to the Isle of Mull and I was four and he was six and the local people all gathered around us and they, they hadn't seen pe people our colour, children our colour of skin before and they said to my mum, they went up to my mum and said, do they have the English? <laughs> and my mum went, oh, aye, they have the English. <laughs> then she said, bloody cheek, most of them don't have the English. Because <laughs> a lot of them spoke Gaelic. <laughs> Every family holiday we went on, my dad would drive either the green Morris van or the white and grey Triumph Herald or the blue Volkswagen Beetle. We always got beaten down second-hand cars that lasted a couple of years. Whether we drove down to Devon or Cornwall or Campbelltown or up to Loch Inver or Torridon, my dad would keep us entertained. Maxie or I would shout out a word and my dad would sing a song with that word in it. No matter how complicated the word, he always found a song. Once I shouted motor car, thinking he'd never find one with motor car in it, but he burst into singing Johnson's motor car. The soundtrack to our holidays was my dad singing and my mum joining in. We've sung our way all over Scotland. I remember shouting out, Road, on the way to Avilochen, driving my favourite of the second-hand cars, the lovely Austin Cambridge, the beautiful light grey car with red leather seats. And my dad sang the road to Dundee. Cold winter was howling or moor in our mountain, and wild was the surge of the dark rolling sea when I met about daybreak a bonny young lassie who asked me the road and the miles to Dundee. And sometimes he'd think of more than one song with that word in it. And so it would go straight into, it's a quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. So give me one for my baby and one more for the road. <laughs> and when we shouted encyclopedia, he sang, Oh Lydia, oh Lydia, the encyclopedia. <laughs> the queen of tattoo, an old Marx Brothers song. And when we shouted oil can, he sang, Oh, the sun shines bright. Oh, the sun shines bright in my oil Kentucky home. <laughs> <laughs> to gales of laughter. 
<coughs> so yes, um, that's that bit. And um, oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. He's planted there. <laughs> so I'm just going to read you a couple more, and then I might stop in, in a bit and see if you've got anything that you want to ask, and then I might read a little bit, bit more. So we'll see, how it, we'll see how it goes. You're all still looking quite lively. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good sign. Um, I might read you another little bit from Red Dust Road in a minute, but for now I thought I'd stop and... Uh, and uh, read something that also involves songs. I'm actually I'm on I'm on desert island discs tomorrow um, morning. Ooh! <laughs> um, I won't be hearing it because I'm doing a workshop. That's just as well. <laughs> and for the people coming to my workshop, they won't be hearing it either. But if I have empty spaces, they'll know that I've competed with myself in a very foolish <laughs> in a foolish way. <laughs> I'd like I'd much rather listen to you on the radio. <laughs> That would be quite fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> it reminds me of actually going to school one time in Manchester and this, and this woman saying to me, do you know, I've heard you a lot on the radio and in my mind you were tall and slender. <laughs> teachers, teachers can be so complimentary at times. <laughs> and then she said, never mind, she said, your voice is highland water going over stones. <laughs> no, it's a straight enough... <laughs> It's the strangest compliment I've ever been paid, but I was kind of having it, I was taking it. So um, this, 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 uh, this poem originally started its life as a, a song, well, it probably still is a song, except that I'm not going to be singing it. And um, both my parents ended up in hospital uh, the year before last, in the, in the same hospital, Glasgow Royal Infirmary. Uh, at the same time, they weren't able to, to visit each other, so they, they wrote each other letters, and a kind porter carried them back and forth. Oh, and it kind of broke my heart that, that the, how, how beautiful that was of being sort of married for 60 years and still want, desperately wanting to communicate with each other. Um, but while we were in hospital, I was just thinking of the ways in which people get often seen um, in hospital. And when my mum came out, I had to, she had to have a zimmer and I bought her a, a poppy red zimmer, very sartorially pleasing one. And on her first trip out to the hairdressers, she said, Jackie, she's seen all the women crowding round me in the hairdressers. Talk about Zimmer Envy. <laughs> <laughs> Zimmer Rage, more like Zimmer Rage. So, so anyway, April, April sunshine. When the people who've lived all of their lives for democracy, for democracy, Survive to see the spring, April sunshine. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. In the hospital, this bleak midwinter, you were just an old woman. You were just an old man. Nobody imagined how you marched against Polaris, how you sat dun at Dunoon, stood up for UCS. Nobody pictured you writing to Mandela and 50 other prisoners of South Africa. In the hospital, this bleak midwinter, you were just an old woman, you were just an old man. Nobody knew how you greeted Madame Allende, or sang the songs of Victor Hara, or loved Big Arthur's bravura, Bandiera Rosa, and heard Paul Robeson at the May Day rally. You were just an old woman, 
you were just an old man. Nobody knew you saw all of 784, the steamy and the bevelers opening nights, how you cried with laughter, how you stood up for the arts, how you stood up for the arts. In the hospital, throughout this long winter, you were just an old woman, you were just an old man, how you went to concerts every Friday at Razmad and how just last Saturday you were mad, you couldn't march against Trident with Nicola Sturgeon. You say, one less missile would subsidise the arts for the century. You say, which politician will stand up for the arts? You would have struggled with your new grey stick. You would have walked with your poppy red zimmer to march against Trident once more, to march against Trident stridently. What do we want, you say? Peace in society, time has not made your politics dimmer. When the people who've lived all of their lives for democracy, for democracy, survive to see the spring, April sunshine, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Thank you very, very, very much. Um, so when uh, I'll return to Red Dust Road for, for a little little bit, talking about blessings um, <laughs> and, and other other kinds of other kinds of, of blessings. Um, so this is a, a little later after uh, after I'd had the two and a half hour ceremony um, <laughs> in my in my hotel room. We went to the bar where um, I had sat down and, and had a drink, um, you know, a whole glass of wine in a oney, basically. Um, well, wouldn't you? <laughs> and uh, so after that, something like this happened. I'm just trying to find the right, right page. Yes, that's disappeared. Yes, here we are. So, yes, I'll just read you another little bit about this, just because I can, and because we're in North Cornwall at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and it seems a perfect little piece to read you. You'll see why in a little minute. So, so, Jonathan says, you said in your letter that you didn't want to answer to a man. That is an odd thing to say. He laughs his high laugh, which is a bit like my laugh. So... If you're not married and you do not have a boyfriend or such, how do you cater for your sex drive? <laughs> the question flies straight out of the blue African sky and flaps around me like a rare bird. I blink and knock back some more cold and indifferent white wine. I think to myself, what have I got to lose? I imagine that you'd think of my lesbianism as deviant disturbed even, perhaps the sly work of Satan. But by this hour in the long day, I have a devil-may-care attitude and couldn't care less if he gets up from the table and walks away or if he gets down on his knees and asks me to repent. What the hell, I think to myself, slightly inebriated. Bring it on! <laughs> Still, I hesitate a little longer, vacillating between bravery and cowardice. You can tell me I'm your father. 
Yerjis winningly. It's the first time he's said this simple sentence. He sees it working and repeats it with extra condiments. I'm your father. You can tell me anything. I love you and I accept you because I'm your father. There can be nothing that would shock me. <laughs> it's the first time too that he's appeared in He's appeared really interested in anything about me. Just my luck, not in my son, not in my childhood, not in my university days, not in my books, not in my parents, but in my sex drive. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. <laughs> well, you know the woman that you spoke to on the telephone? Yes, yes, yes. Well, she's my partner. What do you mean? She's my partner. How so? She's my lover. We've been together for 15 years. I don't bother telling him that just before I flew to Nigeria, Caroline told me she didn't love me anymore and wanted our relationship to end. Too complicated. Oh, 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 oh. You mean you're a lesbian? He credits the word lesbian with three syllables with emphasis on the last. Lesbian. You mean you're a lesbian? Yes, that's right. I'm lesbian. I say, despite myself, I'm a gog to see how he'll take this news. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. He says a string of okays like prayer beads. Then very quickly he says, okay, okay, okay. Which one of you is a man? <laughs> Sorry, I say. I've often wondered about this, he says, and I've never understood. How does it work? Which one of you is the man? His eyes have acquired a sleazy shimmer. He's clearly having more fun than he's had all day. <laughs> and how is it possible for two women to have sex? He asks me, asking me perhaps the most unfatherly question I've ever heard. Neither of us is the man. It doesn't work like that, I say, embarrassed. I down a whole half glass of wine. It's not like that. So, so how do you have sex? He leans forward. I don't believe this. Now the preacher wants a sermon on lesbian sex. <laughs> it's too much. You never expect to talk to your father about sex. Any father, adoptive or birth, about any sex, heterosexual or lesbian, but he won't let the matter drop. He keeps on and on. He reaches into the depths of his imagination for one final image. So, what do you do? You squeeze each other titty and so on and so forth? And the rest, I say, under my breath, sweating now. I look at the turquoise blue of the pool with some longing. I would love to run along the diving board and take a beautiful, breathtaking dive into the pool. Not a belly flap, not a lesbian belly flop, a beautiful fish arc of a dive. Jonathan seems to sense that he's not going to get more salacious details out of me. Strangely enough, though, he's not been at all judgmental in the way I'd feared. So that's something. Quite the opposite. He says to me, when you get home, get out the Bible and say a prayer for each other in front of God and God will recognize your relationship. I don't mind the woman. God doesn't mind the woman, he says. It's the men he minds. <laughs> he screws up his forehead in disgust. It's the men who wants to wear frocks that I mind. I thought at first he was referring to transvestites. Then I realized that he meant gay bishops. <laughs> 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 
There's been a split in the church over the thorny issue of gay clergy led by the fundamentalist Christians in Nigeria. The Bible says it's wrong, so how can they take up the frock? Jonathan says, his face crinkling with revulsion. But the Bible says nothing about women. His face smooths out again. Anyway, it is better for you that you do not go with men. God intends you for higher purposes. Stay away from men. Stay away from men. They will only give you AIDS. And God wants you all for himself. God has a unique plan for you. Heavens, I think. Now God is even involved in my sexuality. What a turn up for the book. very much. I'm going to read uh, two, two other poems and then, then stop for, for a little bit. And uh, this, this poem is just called Muse. You really are a great tent. <laughs> yes, I could, you know, if I had, if I had a little jar called Baited Breath, <laughs> I could open it up. <clears throat> Muse. You cannot hear a poem coming, its wings as soundless as a night moth's, or call it to heal or follow as you would a dog. It is not biddable, it has no tomorrow, and it won't fly in, even if you leave your window wide open. You might not even see it coming, small as it sometimes is, a fly, an ant, a ladybird, or big as it sometimes is, a rhino, an elephant in the room, a hippopotamus. The muse sneaks into your house by stealth, like a burglar, slides into your kitchen, pours a glass of water, cool as you like, by the sink, sneaks a look in your bread bin. It has your number written on its hand. It thinks it knows you well. It thinks it is your friend. <laughs> So t two more before I, I stop. This, this poem uh, I originally called Planet Farage. <laughs> and then I changed the title rather optimistically, it seems now, to Extinction. <laughs> so uh, the man just keeps coming back and coming back. The second coming got nothing on him. <laughs> it's the third and the fourth coming for Planet Farage. Anyway, so this, uh, this poem should really be read in that accent, but I can't quite do that accent properly, so I won't try. We closed the borders, folks. We nailed it. No trees, no plants, no immigrants, no foreign nurses, no doctors. We smashed it. We took control of our affairs. No fresh air, no birds, no bees, no HIV, no poles, no pollen, no pandas, no polar bears, no ice, no dice, no rainforests, no foraging, no France, no frogs, no golden toads, no harlequins, no greens, no Brussels, no vegetarians, no lesbians, no vegan lesbians. <laughs> Just made that one up. It's not in the book. <laughs> 
No carbon curb emissions, no CO2 questions, no lions, no tigers, no bears, no BBC-picked audience, no loony lefties, please, no politically correct classes, no classes, no guardian readers, no readers, no emus, no EUs, no eco-warriors, no euros, no rhinos, no zebras, no burnt bras, no elephants. We shut it down. No immigrants, no immigrants, no immigrants. No snivelling, recycling, global warming nutters. <laughs> little man, little woman, the world is a dangerous place. Now pour me a pint, dear. Get out of my fracking face. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's one of these strange poems that keeps, keeps changing with the times um, in different ways. Um, so uh, this poem is called uh, Darling, and um, I'll finish this little bit for now before I give you a chance to, to, to ask any questions, giving you notice. Um, and if you don't have anything to ask or don't want to, you know me, I can just blether on <laughs> quite easily. I'm a blether of hell, as my mum calls me. <clears throat> So this is uh, Darling, and uh, I wrote it for my dear friend, Julia Darling, who died 11 years ago um, now. And this is really for anyone who's lost anybody who's probably most of us in one way or another. You might forget the exact sound of her voice or how her face looked when sleeping. You might forget the sound of her quiet weeping, curled into the shape of a half moon when smaller than herself, she seemed already to be leaving before she left. When the blossom was on the trees and the sun was out and all seemed good in the world. I held her hand and sang a song from when I was a girl. Heal ya ho boys, let her go boys. And when I stopped singing, she had slipped away, already a slip of a girl again, skipping off. Her heart light, her face almost smiling. And what I didn't know or couldn't say then was that she hadn't really gone. The dead don't go till you do, loved ones. The dead are still here, holding our hands. Thank you very much. Thank you to, to everybody here, especially to, to Fred back there and Phil that are doing, the, doing the, the hard work of the crew and to all the volunteers that work at this, this festival for making it, making it bright and interesting. <coughs> anyway, who, who wants to kick off? Tiffany, have you got something oh. to say? <laughs> if, just as usual, if you've got any questions, just can you wait till the microphone's there? I, I don't have a question. I was a little overcome. Or a comment. <laughs> you overcome. Yeah. Hi. Can you tell us a bit about how you come up with an idea for a poem and then how you refine it into the finished article? Um, well, I think every poem is probably different, wouldn't you reckon, Annie? <laughs> I think that um, you you go through a different process, something, something sparks off a poem and you, you're kind of almost following
dog with a bone. You're, you're trying to follow it to try and work out the, the puzzle that the poem is. And some poems, you, you, you manage to achieve that thing, I suppose, that you might call lift-off, take-off, when the poem feels like it's got some kind of life of its own and is actually up and, and moving. And other times it feels like you, you can't get the, the thing to... To, you're trying to put life into it, but you can't get it to come to life. So for me, I suppose the difference is between the things that kind of take through, and I suppose the case for, for, um, for, um, for all writers, um, whether they're writing novels, memoirs, poetry, or, or not, that you, you have an idea, and it's almost like once you have the idea, you still need to find a spot for the idea. You need something, forgive me, for the idea to rub against. So you need two things, almost. It's never going to be enough to just have the one. It's the, almost the interaction between the two that makes the thing happen. <coughs> you're, you're a poet yourself? My mother was, <coughs> and as I get older, I feel the urge. <laughs> Do you? That's interesting. That's interesting to feel the urge as you get older. Because I'm, I think that people do, um, you know, people take to writing at different times in their life. And uh, and it's never, it's basically, honestly, never too late. Has something happened? Something's happened. Sorry, don't panic. I'm not panicking. <laughs> well, I am. But are you? Don't, don't you panic? Phil. There you go. Is that me? Okay. Good. Can you hear me now? Yes. That's good. Thank you for that. Hello, Have you got to know your extended Nigerian relations? Have I got to know them? Yeah. Yes, I've got to know my brothers. Um, I have a sister that doesn't know I, I exist yet, but I, I have got to know my brothers, and so that's been um, lovely. Um, my, my birth father didn't actually want to tell my brothers about me, and so I had to kind of work, work out really whether to, whether to find them or not, whether that was my right. And I went back to Nigeria after the time that I wrote about in that book about seven years later, and... Uh, and he, he didn't want to see me again, and he didn't want to tell his children. He said to me, if people were to know about you, they would lose their faith in God. <laughs> and I hadn't quite realized I was that powerful before that. <laughs> and, um, and so then I eventually I did decide that it was, it was okay for, for me to, to tell my brothers. I, I felt as if they had a right to know. Um, and so, and so I did, and uh, and they were very, very welcoming. Really, quite the opposite um, experience. So I'm, I'm, I think they're glad that I did, and I am too. But it is a difficult thing. I think uh, these situations are very, very difficult. Marrying up and trying to weigh um, what your right to to know um, with other people's uh, right to have their lives undisturbed is, and trying to find the the the, the, the ground really. Um, between these these two things, I was thinking about that whole question again when I was reading the fish ladder, where that that exact uh, that same dilemma comes up. Um, so probably we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about that uh, in some detail tomorrow. Yes, Patrick. Do you, do you take requests? Request, yes, yes. Um, you may not have it on you, that I love the one about your granny and the bread bin. Oh, right. Um, I don't know if they've got that book. If they've got it here, then uh, I can read a bit of it, yes. Is, have they got re Reality Reality there in the bookstore? I'll, I'll go have, you, have oh, a someone's look. Someone's got it here. Oh, someone's got it. Oh, how thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, it's worth planting you there just to have that experience. <clears throat> Thank you. Yes, I, I will. I'll read a bit of that then. 
Um, unless anyone has anything else, because I'll probably finish with reading a bit of this. One more question. One more yeah. question. Okay. Go first? Yeah, why not, Phil? Let's go for it. Oh, I, don't, I don't want to throw it off kilter, but I was just going to ask you, do you think there's a relationship between your having been, you know, from very little, knowing that you were a, a different colour to the, everybody else in your street, including your parents, um, a, that you had to find your own story, that you had to make your own story. Do you think there's a relationship between your extraordinary creativity and the making sense of being different yeah. in some way. It's an interesting question. In fact, in a way, you, you just asked me that question uh, um, earlier um, um, for, for the piece that you're doing, your, your blog. Um, and, and it is a really interesting uh, question. I, I think, yes, I think there is a relationship between um, not necessarily being a stranger to yourself in some way and partly inventing yourself. It means that you're already, you've already got a story. You arrive with a story. I mean, my, my, my mum, who, who uh, loved the fact that she had children that were adopted that came with stories in their baskets, used to kind of really embellish the stories. So I grew up hearing stories. And she used to love imagining my birth father. She'd say to me things like, I'm pictured in a Paul Robeson figure, Jackie. <laughs> Maybe with a bit of Nelson Mandela mixed in. <laughs> so I already had this sort of sense of being part invented and then being part, part, part made up. And, um, and I think that there's only, it's only really a skip and a jump away to, to that and, and then, and then uh, um, making, um, writing about that. Um, because I think when you are adopted, as you know yourself, you, you partly have to invent yourself because some of the things, because of what you're told is so scanty, really, and some of it turns out to be, you know, like a lot of that was completely, my mum just made things up. You know, she'd, she'd, she'd say, Jackie, they were madly in love, but he was betrothed. And she loved that word betrothed. I learned the word betrothed from a really young age. <laughs> he was betrothed, and he had to go to Nigeria, so he had to leave your birth mother, so she had to give you up. And that all just turned out to be a complete and utter story, but a kind of wonderful story because uh, she loved me enough, I suppose, to make up a story that, 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 that made you feel uh, loved. So yes, I think, I think the invention of stories and the, and the being kind of uh, ruptured, if you like, in some way from what would have been your original story, then perhaps makes you go on to write stories. And I think that uh, people feel that in all sorts of different ways. So it doesn't need to be because you're adopted. It could be that you didn't fit in with your family. It could be that you actually have your biological parents, but you can't believe that you belong to them. <laughs> you look at them and you think, what, really? Um, you know, it could be that there's, there's just some sense of strangeness that you have or some sense of loss or something where you just feel somehow different from, from, um, from the people around you. And that difference is often what prompts you into writing, um, and what, what, you know, it's, it's often the thing that you're looking for um, to, to to find some sort of expression for that. I think Rupert has that that uh, as well, um, that that sense. Um, and I think a lot of Patrick too. I think a lot of us writers find that that uh, that way of, of invention that comes out of out of our, our quite strange life experiences sometimes. Odd parties in the house. <laughs> <coughs> That was a reference to Rupert. Yeah. <laughs> he knows, but nobody. <laughs> you, you might not have got it anyway. Um, is that is that is that the last part? That's great. I'm going. I'm going to read you a little bit now from this this story, um, which was partly inspired by my my grandmother, but it's not an autobiographical story at all. And sometimes I like kind of messing or mixing things up so as you 
you uh, you you have maybe somebody's voice, and that voice would be in the real real person, but the things that are happening are, are not. Um, so this is Breadbin, and you'll notice that Breadbin was in that other poem a bit. So I don't know why I've got a running thing about Breadbins, but I like the idea of an academic coming along and saying, <laughs> trying to make something of the Breadbins, you know. <laughs> And I quite like creating older women characters because uh, it seems as if past a certain age, pe people become invisible, and them um, being interesting characters just 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 glows. So, um, so this was partly inspired by my grandmother, who lived to be old enough to add on the half years, you know, ninety-one and a half. Talking, <laughs> the half years are really important. <laughs> and she was quite. Uh, she had a real turn of phrase. I remember when Ian McEwan got. Um, shortlisted for the booker for the second time, she said, Ah, will Jackie, the fat sow's arse is always greased. <laughs> it was a Loch Gelly turn of phrase. I've never been able to look at Ian McEwan's bottom in quite the same way. It's taken me until the age of 49 to have really wonderful sex. I think that's not bad. Some people don't experience good sex until they're 60. I often see secretly smiling 60-year-olds when I'm out and about. Then again, some people never have it at all. My grandmother told me she'd never had an orgasm. She would discuss sex with a frankness that surprised and embarrassed my mother. Maggie, her good pal, had described an orgasm to her. Maggie says it's a kind of a spasm. <laughs> a great spasm that shakes and shakes the core of you till you're good for nothing. Like a tree in a wild winter storm, a good orgasm could actually uproot you, Maggie had told my grandmother. That was why she'd left her husband of 40 years and ran off with a woman. A womanly woman, actually, my grandmother said, with more than a hint of wistfulness. The first orgasm of Maggie's entire life uprooted her. <laughs> she lives down south now. <laughs> <coughs> oh, what a shame, I said, delighted. My grandmother nodded, sipping her tea, a little sorry for herself. Then she snapped out of it. It's not one of my biggest regrets, never having had an orgasm, if you're good for nothing afterwards, she said sensibly. <laughs> Most of her life, she said, her proud neck shaking a little for double emphasis, she was good for something. Even my bread bin was clean, she said. <laughs> like some women had got away with having dirty bread bins. <laughs> Even the washing on my line was colour coordinated, she said, indignant now. Other women had got away with mixing up colours on their lines. I tried to look admiring. I was in my early 40s back then and was beginning to think that I'd never find it either. What's all the fuss about, I'd say to pals in similar situations, out for consoling meals in romantic restaurants surrounded by 60-year-olds in love? Am I missing something? That bit's too much for here at 4 o'clock in afternoon. <laughs> 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 what have you done to me, Patrick? This is like an absolute... There's no censorship of this, Marquis. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've 
dancing like ground just to skip straight to the end. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm a terrible coward. <laughs> I began. We well, haven't got the time. No. <laughs> <laughs> Run out. I've got one and a half minutes left. I began to think my grandmother was right that she hadn't missed all that much. The lovers I had either ran away, either seemed to run away with their orgasms as if they were secret nuts to nibble on someplace far from me, or they shrieked the place down, making elaborate and excruciating expressions on their faces, slapping the bed and slapping me and frightening the hell out of me. <laughs> Those ones made me feel that like I was trapped in some sort of Edinburgh Fringe performance show. <laughs> Nearly given up, I met her, Martha. We were sitting opposite each other on a train. We chatted for quite a while and I fell asleep for a little dreamlike time. When I woke up, Martha smiled at me. There was something in the way that she smiled, a kind of openness. I knew then, I just knew then, that I would wake up to many, many more times with Martha smiling at me. We courted for a long time. Drinks, dinners, chats, emails, texts. And then one night she was round at mine and the thing happened to me. It went all the way through me. It sped back to my birth and hurtled towards my death. It went through me like a train, like a boat upturning, like a tree in a wild storm. A couple of days later, I phoned my 85-year-old grandmother to say that her pal Maggie had not been exaggerating. I've got a new woman in my life, Gran! I shouted down the phone. She was very hard of hearing. Good, she said, good! But has she got a clean bed bit? <laughs> I told you she was good. Jackie, that was absolutely wonderful. We could have sat here for another hour. I know you probably couldn't, but... Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're on. You're asking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom.